This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with international students coming to Canada in record numbers. Now, Canada on track this year. Check this number out here. This is amazing. 900,000 international students this year. That number has gone up quite a bit in recent years. And the government now expressing concerns about the system, including the pressure on housing supply in key markets, including, of course, in Vancouver. I've got immigration lawyer Colin Singer standing by to discuss here. First, let's have a listen here to the federal housing minister, Sean Fraser, uh, talking about pressure from international students in Canada. Have a listen. The International Student Program makes extraordinary uh, economic and social contributions to Canada. It contributes tens of billions of dollars uh, to our GDP annually. Uh, but what we've seen recently is there's been such rapid growth, given that the program is typically uncapped, that certain communities are having uh, difficulties managing with the population growth that it's attracted. Yeah. Yeah, you heard him mention the big money here that's involved with this issue as well. But I think we're seeing in, in certain, definitely in Vancouver, it does seem to be aggravating the housing problem. Let's discuss now with my guest, Colin Singer. Colin is an immigration lawyer. Immigration.ca is his website. Very pleased to welcome him. Colin, thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate it. And I think for a lot of Canadians, when we hear the number of 900,000 international students in the country this year, I think that might, that number might take people by surprise. Do you think Canadians realize how big this program is right now? Uh, no, I think it's, uh, it's a, a learning process right now. People are, are getting to understand, uh, feeling those who are looking for accommodations, buying properties, uh, they're, they're feeling, uh, you know, the, the prices are skyrocketing. Uh, but hidden in the background is this growing uh, in immigration number that's coming to Canada. And students currently are, interestingly, the biggest uh, silo of, of newcomers to Canada across all streams. Uh, and I think even immigration authorities are, are quite concerned that this stream has now become the number one and the largest of all streams coming to Canada. Yeah, I'm not surprised, but when you talk about 900,000, I mean, that's a huge, a huge number. And is it easy for international students to get into Canada? Like we heard the minister mention in that clip there that the program is uncapped. There doesn't seem to be any maximum limit on it. Is it, is it a, a fairly simple matter for international students to come to Canada and be allowed to enter here? Uh, typically not. Interestingly, the current Minister of Housing was the former immigration minister, and now yeah. he's mandated to fix this problem yeah. of uh, housing uh, shortages. Uh, but uh, it is not easy to become a student. An international student has to have quite uh, a strong financial profile to accommodate uh, one year uh, of living expenses. Uh, obviously, uh, housing will be very high on the list. And, and their tuition, which is upwards of three times the cost for a Canadian. So typically, a foreign student going to a, a, a three-year program or two-year college program would have to show upwards of $50,000 of finances uh, that's readily available, liquid, uh, dating back uh, at least six months, sometimes more, uh, depending on the visa office. So it's not easy. Okay, that's very interesting detail to know. Now, let's talk a little bit about the number of, of private institutions in Canada that seem to be growing rapidly as well to accommodate this, this demand here in Canada. I'll play another clip here, Colin, for you for, from the, the new federal housing minister, Sean Fraser, as you mentioned, the former immigration minister, as it happens. Here he is commenting about the number of private colleges that are springing up in Canada, too. Let's listen. 
What we've seen that I'm far more concerned with is an explosion of private colleges who are not necessarily subject to the level of oversight. And keep in mind there's mixed federal and provincial jurisdiction here because provinces actually identify the institutions that have access to the international student program today. We've seen an explosion in the number of institutions who are actually taking students and rapidly growing. Okay, it's interesting to hear him discuss that in the number of rapid, rapidly growing number of private colleges and he seems to think that's a problem. Colin, your thoughts? Uh, I I completely agree. Uh, The problem also is that uh, there's no oversight uh, on the performance of these colleges to monitor the students who are allegedly coming in uh, as students. Um, What has happened in the past two years is there were previous restrictions on students being able to work in Canada. Of course, they had to show good financial uh, profiles. And what happened with the post-pandemic, employers were having a hard time in many industries, food service, one of them, healthcare. Uh, Students were, the restrictions of 20 hours per week uh, working uh, were lifted so that students could work unlimited hours. What has happened, uh, as we can see, is that the student numbers now planning to be 900,000 across the entire silo, uh, uh, are people who are allowed to work. Many yeah. agents overseas are encouraging students to completely ignore their student requirements. They don't have a plan to really study, and they can just go and get an open, unrestricted work permit. And basically, this student uh, body of, of numbers is, is just another work permit silo uh, that's added you know, in a, glo- in a large number to the uh, current student numbers, uh, uh, work, uh, temporary workers, which in yeah. itself is about 600,000. So you have about 2 million people a year coming to Canada across all channels, of which 900,000 are students. And there's incentive for these colleges to, to become formed, and the revenue base is, is quite substantive when you're charging three times the uh, regular cost of a Canadian to go to their schools. Okay, so if you were allowed as an international student in Canada to work while you're in the country with no limit on the number of hours you, you're allowed to work, it sounds like the international student program to a, a great degree is more of like a, a temporary worker program rather than a rather than a study program is that what it has become in it's my opinion that it's our opinion that that is what's happening uh certain high source destiny high source uh, markets that are producing students coming to canada uh are are allowed to come and work while they're studying. A lot of these uh, study programs are just two-year colleges. They don't really lead to any uh, major long-term employment. Also bear in mind the student market is very important for Canada. Uh, Upwards of 30% of all student holders ultimately become Canadian permanent residents. So it's a really good pool of people. So we don't want to harm that pool, but I think it's completely out of hand in the number of colleges and the fact that there's no monitoring, uh, there's no no oversight where schools have to ensure that the students who are coming there are are in fact attending class and being full-time students. Speaking to immigration lawyer Colin Singer, we're talking about the skyrocketing number of international students in Canada. Play another clip here for you, Colin, from the housing minister, Sean Fraser, and you'll hear him discuss the the issue around increased work hours allowed for international students here, and he doesn't seem to be that that worried about that part of it here in this clip. Let's listen. I was responsible for increasing the number of hours that international students could work so they could help contribute a solution to the labor shortage at the time and better equip themselves to have what they need to take care of themselves in their community. I remain an enormous supporter of the international student program. Okay, okay. so he takes credit there for increasing the work hours for international students and you heard him discuss there how it actually helped it help us to deal with the skill shortage and the worker shortage in Canada. I mean, isn't that more, I don't know, it's almost like an admission. It's not really a student program. It's more like a work program. 
well, given the given the fact that students come over here and you have instance, you there are there's data that shows some of these schools are bringing in students. They don't even have the per capita teaching capacity for these students. So there are a lot of abusers into in in this particular uh, industry. And if students were required to, I, I can be certain about this. If they put the 20 hour a week limit back, you would effectively uh, remove many uh, would be students who really intend to come and work here full time, don't really care about their post-secondary or whatever they're planning to study. And, and they would find other channels or other destinations. So I think uh, the, 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 the thought should be given, maybe not, you know, they're, they're looking at caps, although I highly yeah. doubt they're going to pose caps, but I think if they rolled back the 20 hour, put it back to 20 hours, you would see a very substantive change in the number of foreign students applying to come to Canada. Okay, what, now what about this idea of a cap on the maximum number of international students allowed into Canada? Because you have heard a couple of ministers sort of openly muse about this this week. Would they bring a cap in to limit the numbers? Do you think that's, you don't believe that's the right way to go? Well, first of all, it's important to 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 acknowledge the word cap does not exist anywhere in our immigration system. Uh, what the government uses is our, our levels. Uh, the word mm. cap, you know, it, it's an American concept. Uh, for sure, they have caps and quotas. Uh, so we indirectly impose uh, certain levels that are target levels with a, a high and a low and a medium. Uh, it would never. It's never. It's never been. Our our phraseology has never included the, this concept, uh, and I highly doubt they're going to go down that road right now. Uh, there are other indirect ways to uh, achieve the result that that policymakers would want, and I suggest uh, putting a 20-hour put the 20-hour a week cap back uh, on the number of hours, and you will suddenly exclude. Uh, thousands of would-be applicants who claim to want to study, but really they're just looking to work full-time. Uh, so th those are those are my thoughts. The word cap really, I highly doubt it's going to find its way into any policy uh, uh, and, and any, any legislation. Okay, we're following it closely, to say the least. Colin, thank you for your, your analysis on it today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. All right, let's keep talking about this housing crunch that we're experiencing in Canada, particularly acute, of course, in Metro Vancouver. i got Paul Kershaw standing by to discuss. He recently made a presentation to Justin Trudeau's cabinet on a housing strategy for the country, which I think is really, really interesting. Now, Paul is a UBC professor, founder of Generation Squeeze, and he advocates for young people in particular have been priced out of this housing market. Listen to some of their voices here. This is the voices, these are the voices of young Canadians who can't afford, never forget about buying a place, they can't afford to rent a place in many cases. Have a listen. I just got a good job. I start in September, but even with that job, I can't buy anything. I can't afford the rent these days. The wages are staying the same. I can't afford to move out. I'm 24. And I'm embarrassed that I can't move out. So what am I supposed to do? Where where am I supposed to go? I'm working like three jobs right now because the cost of living, and I'm not even really saving that. I'm not saving anything, really. $350,000 got you a really nice place, at least where I'm from. Now it's like you need $700,000 plus to even get a half-decent home. Yeah, yeah. This is the reality that a lot of young people face 
right now. What can we do about it? Let's discuss with Paul Kershaw from UBC, founder of Generation Squeeze. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Paul, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. You bet. I appreciate it a lot. And, Paul, I was very interested in your, the invitation you received to present to Justin Trudeau's cabinet recently at that cabinet retreat uh, um, with your thoughts on housing. And can you t- how did that come about? How do you get an invitation to go and present in front of the whole cabinet here? That's very interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll confess that I'm not sure how the invitation came about. Um, you, know, you know, it was as simple as an email in my inbox, and um, again, it's a rare opportunity to be able to you know present to cabinet. So I, I took them up on the offer to share some time with them because you know the voices you just heard, the voices you heard, you know, there's this grief permeating throughout their 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 comments, and that grief is so real because this is dream that a good home should be in reach for what hard work can earn in our country, whether that's as a renter or an owner or some other tenure, like it's just, it's not there, not just home ownership, but just even renting. And so the, the, the punchline that we have to grapple with is, you know, hard work isn't paying off for young people as it did for past generations. And, and, and we need to now just like overcome that problem with a great deal of urgency. Yeah, and on that point, when you take a look at the income gap here, like if you take a look at the median income in, in say, Metro Vancouver, and you compare that to the price of housing and now increasingly even the cost of rent, like I've heard from people who say, well, you know, maybe some of these young kids should stop complaining and start saving up for a down payment. That's what we did when we were young, if we're already in the home ownership market. Do you think that... Like, how does that argument stand up against the, the if we do the math on this? Yeah, I'm going to jump in. I can, you know, I can't hold myself back on that one. It's just rubbish. It's just absolute rubbish. So here's what the data show. You know, in the mid-1970s, when baby boomers were young adults coming of age, it took five years of full-time work for a typical young person uh, to save a 20% down payment on an average-priced home. Yeah. If you flash forward to today, it's 17 years across the country, 22 in Ontario and BC, 27 in Metro Vancouver and the GTA. That's just a dramatic, dramatic deterioration in the way that hard work pays off because you can't save in that way. You have to start saving when you're in childcare. And I've joked on your program in the past that childcare, until $10 a day childcare came into place, is costing people another rent or mortgage sized payment. And I think the key thing, you know, I was invited to talk on a panel about youth issues. And if you go to Generation Squeeze, you'll see that we never describe these things as youth issues. We talk about them as being an, a reflection of an intergenerational problem. Yeah. And, and so I think that the framing of youth issues is really part of the problem at this moment. And that we need to know it is, was entirely predictable that we were going to cause young people today, and I should add newcomers of any age, to not be able to afford housing because we kept tolerating Home prices rising and rising and rising, and we didn't do all that we could to say we want to slow home prices down. We want them to stop rising indefinitely. And because we didn't do that, it's just basic math. When you keep extracting so much wealth, and I am part of this, I am so much richer because of the home in which I live. But if we keep extracting so much of that wealth for those of us who are already homeowners, by definition, mathematically, you leave less affordability for those who follow. And so, you know, I think this is the moment where, whether it's Prime Minister Trudeau or Mr. Polyev or Premier Eby or Premier Ford, notice that's all the parties, you know, we need all of them to be saying, henceforth, you know, to restore affordability for all, we need home prices to stall so that earnings can catch up. Oh, okay. And for whatever reason, that still seems politically controversial for our leaders to say. Okay, well, let's talk about that. So let's talk about your presentation to cabinet there. So what did you tell Justin Trudeau and his cabinet? What should he do? Yeah, so, I mean, technically, those are actual cabinet meetings, so they are, you know, they are um, bound by cabinet secrecy. So, you know, I can't talk about the specifics of what happened in that meeting. But I can go back to, you know, it was about youth issues. And as I said, you can see on the, you know, on the Gen Squeeze website, we, we don't you know, use that framing. So I mean, the, you know, that kind of context was shaping my conversation. And on, on the housing front specifically, you know, I'm a public policy professor at UBC. There are many policy tools that we need to pull to fix this issue, but I don't think it's a policy problem any longer. 
I actually think it is a cultural problem. And culturally, we're still looking for the easy villains. You talked about, oh, a young person just wasting their money, not working hard, not saving properly. You know, that's, you know, that's somebody else's problem. Or, you know, we, we're mad about a foreign buyer. Or the flavor of the week most recently was international students who were coming and spending big dollars to keep our universities afloat. But how dare they want to rent somewhere to live while they're going to our schools? They're the villains. But the problem is, those are all easy people to be angry with. But the reason that home prices have risen in Metro Vancouver and BC and across Canada is that many, many regular folks like me have been entangled in the idea that home prices would continue to rise. We've been banking on that. We've been saying that's been kind of good for me. I'm getting more security. And that, that very cultural assumption that entangles us is the root cause of the problem. And we need our politicians not to talk to younger folks who are getting locked out so much, but to talk to older homeowners like me and especially those who are older than me, baby boomer homeowners in particular, and say, you love these kids. You love your grandchildren. you got to get off the sidelines and start helping to be part of the solution. Like, you need to get some skin in the game to restore housing affordability for those who follow in your footsteps. Oh, okay. That is your legacy. Okay, and that's where we, we come to the, the idea of an, an, an annual ec- home equity tax or a surtax on, on expensive homes. And you have pitched the idea of a home that's valued at a million dollars or more that the owner would pay an annual tax, use that money to build affordable housing, right? Is that still, is that still the primary idea that you, you have? You know, that's one of several, and I can confirm, actually, that I did not speak about that in cabinet, since it's, you know, I'm allowed to say what I didn't say. Um, so <laughs> I can confirm that that was not part of the conversation at, my cabinet meeting, at the cabinet meeting where I participated. You know, there's many things that we need to do. And, you know, on the one hand, absolutely, we can ask people like me who have, you know, gained wealth, how might we contribute a bit of that wealth to, you know, you know, invest in deeply affordable housing and also, you know, have a downward pressure on home prices. When you shelter something from taxation, by definition, you're incentivizing people to move their money there because they get a better after-tax return. When people shelter their money in some Swiss bank account or in the Cayman Islands, we kind of think that, you know, that's un-Canadian and, you know, you're, you're doing something that's shady. But, you know, we absolutely have the same policy incentive with regards to, to housing and, and accumulating housing wealth. But I think more generally right now, you know, we have a, a kind of addiction to growing our GDP, which relies on real estate rental and leasing. In British Columbia, 20 percent, 20 percent of our GDP is real estate rental and leasing, but fewer than 2 percent of people make their livelihoods there. Yeah, sure, mm. construction is a whole other industry. Um, but it has its own component to GDP and its own share of uh, employment. So this massive gap in BC between GDP and earnings is showing the following. Real estate agents and their companies make good money. Homeowners like me, we're doing well. But everyone who's not in those two categories is simply having their hard work pay off less why, than it why, did in the past. Okay, Paul, why did you not bring up your idea of a home equity tax in the meeting with Trudeau's cabinet? Because it seems to me like that's been one of the, you know, your primary rallying calls here to correct this distorted market. Why would you not, why would you not pitch that to him? My message was at a higher level. My message was we need to have a conversation that is, you know, getting to the harder truth that we, you know, that we need to get our parents and grandparents off the sidelines and that they have a role to play. And there are a range of ways to go about doing that. And so, you know, that's where the conversation was. I was talking about a broader range of youth issues. Yeah. And indeed, I was looking a lot at government deficits um, and the way in which, um, you, know, you know, the 2023 budget actually has $132 billion of deficits. And, um, you know, one of the things we observed in our commentary about the 2023 budget is like 85% of that deficit spending is new spending towards those who are over 65. This is my mom's demographic, a really important one. But how can we be using so much of economic growth to be funding things that, you know, later in the life course and then leave so little left over to invest in a younger demographic that's being just, you know, squeezed by home prices, squeezed by environmental damage um, and then squeezed by deficits because we leave unpaid bills. So it's a broader conversation that I was, um, you know, that I was having about intergenerational justice more generally in the country. Okay. Paul, it's always great to get your input on the show. Thank you for coming on today.
You're most welcome. Have a great day. All right, let's talk about buying a new or used car or truck now. If you are in the market for a new vehicle, listen up here, because it is a bit of a jungle out there still. Still some supply issues, especially if you're looking for a popular vehicle. My buddy decided to buy an EV hybrid Toyota RAV4. That is a nice vehicle. He had to wait a year and a half to get it, though. What about the used car market? Well, there are still some shortages there as well. Got Daniel Ross standing by, Canadian Black Book. First, have a listen to this report from Global News. The cost of a used Civic has probably never been higher because the demand for both new and used now because you can't get them. Economists say supply chain issues, complicated most recently by the BC port strike, are contributing in part to the shortage. I don't believe we'll go back to 2019 prices and the reason why is just that cars are more expensive to make overall. Electric vehicles are especially expensive. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Daniel Ross. Daniel is the Senior Manager of Automotive Industry Insights at Canadian Black Book. Very pleased to welcome him. Daniel, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate it. So let's, let's first of all, let's talk about the, uh, the used vehicle market in Canada r- right now. What's that looking like right now? Because I thought that, I thought the supply chain issues and the shortages weren't, wasn't that behind us now? Wasn't it looking, getting better? Well, yeah, you're correct in one respect. So it is getting better on the new car side. And what's depicted used car supply is new car sales. And for the last, you know, two and a half, three years, we've had poor new car sales, and that's not going to support an influx of used vehicles into the sales channel. So when you're looking at the recovery, it's on the new car side, and it still takes time to translate over to the used car side. Right, so you're seeing... You're seeing a shortage of used vehicles out there right now? Yeah, I mean, the demand is around used cars for affordability for one for one point. Um, with high new car prices and high interest rates, it's costing more than ever for anyone uh, to get into a new vehicle if they can find that vehicle. So where the support is, is on the used car side. Okay, which which cars are in the uh, in highest demand right now? Cars or trucks? I guess. Like, are people looking for EVs? But EVs are expensive too, though. EVs are very expensive. I would say the real focus of the market right now is around plug-ins and hybrids. Um, yeah. That's predominantly where people are, are searching for an electrified vehicle. EVs are just pricing themselves out of a lot of consumers' households. Um, the affordability contingency is is big. And they're not able to to make it work, so they gravitate to electrified vehicles or smaller vehicles like cars. Yeah, I mean, if you are buying a gas-powered vehicle with the price of gas the way it is right now, are people looking for a more more fuel-efficient vehicle, so you get a smaller smaller vehicle? Yeah, exactly. So um, the standpoint on a monthly payment basis, yeah, things are more expensive, so they'll downsize there to a smaller SUV or a car, and then. The um, budget requirements go twofold, so you have that component, and then the price of gas would obviously um, be a restriction. You want an electrified vehicle or a vehicle that's much more efficient on gas, and smaller vehicles are predominantly more efficient on gas. Speaking of Daniel Ross, Canadian Black Book, when you speak to used car dealers, Daniel, what are they telling you about sourcing inventory? Are they finding it tough to find stuff to put on the lot? Well, they're finding certain things, um, not what they need in order to sell. Um, those vehicles, obviously, higher demand, less supply, are harder to uh, place in their inventory. So they're just not getting what they would like in terms of higher sales rate uh, vehicles. And that's predominantly the message coming across. The inventory can be supplemented, but it's just not the right stuff that'll sell. Okay. And given the short supply, Lots of people looking for a used vehicle. What are the prices looking like right now? Are prices going up? Um, On the retail side, uh, prices are still going up. On the wholesale side, when a a dealer or or, or anyone in the um, used market, secondary market, looking to get vehicles for their business, they're not buying them as expensive as they were, but on the retail side, it hasn't really translated yet. So cars are still very expensive, and the retail prices are awfully sticky, so they're still high. 
Are, are there any when you take a look at this sort of across Canada issues right now in the market? Are, are there particular parts of the country that are that have a, a more acute supply? shortage of vehicles like are there more vehicles available in sort of the big urban centers of the country and and less in the more rural remote parts of canada or is it is it pretty much consistent across the country i think in terms of volume by province it's still predominantly what it used to be there's probably concentrations of certain types of vehicles in certain markets you know be it electric vehicles or plug-in hybrids those were predominantly sold in quebec and, and british columbia for the new car incentives. So they're concentrated in those regions. Um, ultimately, everything is sort of still at a sales volume or market share that is is reminiscent to what it used to be. Um, it's just lower volume everywhere. Yeah. How about for a newer vehicles? And boy, I remember during during the pandemic and all the supply chain problems that we saw, and there were lots of problems with uh, micro, microchips to build new vehicles and, and other sort of technical supply parts for, for new vehicles. Has that sort of resolved itself, or are there still some supply chain challenges? I'd say it's it's resolving itself. It hasn't completely resolved itself. It's not back to normal. Um, you bring up EVs and electrified vehicles a lot, and those are predominantly the vehicles that require more of these semiconductors. Um, and those are improving in supply, but they're not necessarily out of the woods in terms of um, their capacity to, su- to support the market. So it's still kind of um, a little bit muddy out there for the waters. Daniel, do you have any tips for people out there or in the market for, for a new or a used vehicle? What would, what would be your advice right now? Um, if they can't wait to purchase that vehicle, if it, if it must happen, Try to give yourself enough time, give yourself some options out there. You're not going to get exactly what you want when you want it. Um, so if you give yourself time and, and necessary options where multiple examples could work for your lifestyle or work for your needs, that would probably go over better than you know holding oh. true to uh, what you want. Okay, and why would you advise to wait? To, like, Do you see this improving down the road? I think prices will improve. It's supply. Supply hasn't necessarily recovered, especially from what I just spoke to. Um, And if you're looking on the new car side, it's very expensive. If you want some affordability in the market, you have to go use, especially right now, before prices start to improve. And if you must buy now, that's kind of uh, the scenario you're dealing with. Yeah, and you mentioned the EV market, particularly in British Columbia, with some of the rebates on offer. Is BC? Do they, does British Columbia have some of the more generous, generous incentives and rebates for an EV? Yes, um, Quebec would be the leader there, and uh, British Columbia is the second place. So, okay. um, for larger markets, those are the two provinces that basically have what uh, what could support electric vehicle adoption. Daniel, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Take care. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. All right, let's talk, uh, continue our focus on housing now. This is a super difficult economy now. Price is still high and unaffordable for many people who have given up on buying a home. Okay, how about renting then? Well, rents are through the roof. Vacancies are low. We've talked on the show today about the impact of immigration and international students on the housing supply in in Vancouver. We're going to get into that as well. My guest is Jay Cooper. Jay is a Vancouver real estate agent. First, have a listen to uh, Amy Libby here. She is a renter in Abbotsford about the stresses and strains on her family just trying to afford a place to rent. Have a listen. We were lucky and found our home on a community page. Um, but it was still $400 over what we were previously paying, even just from a year ago. We can make our rent payments, we can pay our bills, but that's it. Like, we don't go out to eat, our daughters aren't in any extra 
extracurricular activities. We don't really do anything, <laughs> as sad as that sounds. We just can't afford to. Yeah, don't do much else other than pay the rent. A lot of people are in that boat for sure these days. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Jay Cooper. Jay is a Vancouver real estate agent, very popular on social media. Give him a follow on TikTok. Hey, Jay, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate it. So, Jay, I've been enjoying your videos on TikTok. Let's talk about some of the, the points that you, you hit on there. First of all, when you take a look at this market in Vancouver, you've got your finger on the pulse here. Man, the prices are still so high, maybe cooled off a, a little bit, but you made the point now that like Vancouver is basically in the same class now as like New York. Hong Kong, would you say that we're in that sort of stratosphere now? We're getting there. Um, you know, I think when I hear Vancouver is the most expensive city, um, you know, I kind of shake my head at that because um, although we are the most expensive in Canada, uh, Vancouver and Toronto, we're actually 137th globally. Um, so we're not even close to being the most expensive city on the planet, not even by a long shot. Um, okay. However, when we talk about affordability metrics for regular uh, working class people, um, you know, we are we are fairly expensive. Yeah, and speaking of that, when you take a look uh, at the median income in Vancouver compared to house prices, and we broke this down in some detail earlier on the show today, how in previous generations there used to be an ability on a working class income to save up for maybe four or five years and you'd have enough for a down payment. Now it's like, you know, the math has just gone completely sideways on it. And for a young person now, especially trying to save for a down payment, it's almost seems near, near impossible. Like when you speak to first time home buyers and they must be frustrated, what kind of stories do you hear out there? It's getting tougher and tougher. Um, you know, prices became detached from local incomes in Vancouver over 40 years ago. Um, we are primarily uh, an equity-based market. So it's people that have bought homes, built equity, paid down the mortgage, um, and then they take that uh, and put it on the down payment on their next place. For somebody on the outside looking in, it's getting uh, it's getting very difficult uh, here, Mike. You mentioned the... Um, you wanted to talk about the price to income ratio. Yeah. So a normally accepted price to income ratio for a city is about five times your annualized uh, income. I don't know who came up with that. It was probably back in the 1980s when interest rates were 22 and a half percent, but um, uh, you know, five times, believe it or not, you can buy real estate in Canada for four or five times your annualized income, you know, go to Calgary, go to Winnipeg um, in Vancouver, that jumps to about, last time I checked about 14 times. So it yeah. takes 14 times your annualized income to get, you know, reasonable accommodation. Um, so that is expensive in Canada. Uh, but if we look at, I've got a list here of some major international cities. So New York trades at 10 times. So mm. New York is more expensive. Um, how, however, in terms of affordability, New York is actually more affordable than Vancouver because, of course, incomes in Manhattan are going to be a lot higher than incomes here. You know, the typical household income in Vancouver is only about $90,000. Um, so New York's at 10 times. Sydney trades at 16 times. London, 16 times. Beijing, 33 times. Hong Kong, 40 times. Wow. So... If you want to understand real estate locally, you have to understand real estate globally. Um, we're kind of in the middle of the pack here in terms of prices and affordability. I know that's not what people want to hear, um, but it, I think it's going to get a lot more expensive here. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Vancouver real estate agent, Jay Cooper, when we take a look at some of the other pressures on, on the market right now, Jay, let's talk a little bit about interest rates. Because we've got rising interest rates. Who knows? We could be seeing another interest interest rate hike here with inflation still still a problem. What kind of impact are those rising rates having? Yeah, so I should preface this by saying I'm not, first of all, an economist. The economists don't know. Even the experts get this wrong. My mortgage brokers, we can only kind of forecast. And, and again, this is just an educated guess um, what I've been saying since the beginning is that inflation is transitory. And I came under a lot of heat for that. 
Um, but you know, we did peak at 8% inflation. We're now down to 3%. The Bank of Canada uh, has a target of 2%. So we're getting close to that um, where we need to be. Now, the former governor, Stephen Polos, uh, was listening to him. And he said recently that inflation is actually going to fall a lot faster than most people expect. And the reason for that is that interest rates usually take 18 months to two years to be to work their way through the system. So we haven't seen the full impact of these rate hikes yet. We've seen some of it. But what's going to happen is as people start to renew their, their fixed rate mortgages and they go from 2% to a 6% or even a 7%, they're going to have payment shock. Now, yeah. don't listen to the doomsday guys. You know, they'll tell you that there's going to be defaults and a wave of foreclosures and it's going to be like the subprime in the United States. They don't know what they're talking about. That's not going to happen. But what it will do is it will create some payment shock and uh, people are going to have to tighten their belts. You're going to see discretionary spending go down. Um, and when, and that's what the Bank of Canada wants to do. They want to slow down the inflation, slow the spending and um um, that sets the stage uh, for potentially rate cuts as early as the first quarter of 2024. That's what my experts are telling me. First quarter, second quarter, it's it's hard to say. There's so many moving parts to this, but I do think we'll get some relief uh, early next year. That being said, you know the Bank of Canada is on the one hand trying to crush inflation, but you've got Mr. Trudeau here with his carbon tax that's going to make everything from fuel to groceries more expensive. So you know, there's just so many moving parts here. Yeah, well, I hope you're right on the on the inflation outlook that you have there, Jay. Let's talk a little bit on, on the on the rental side. And we talk a lot about that on the show here, too. For a lot of people, especially young people who have given up on the idea of even buying a, a modest condo, you know, finding a decent, affordable place to rent is really the only the only option. The problem we got, we take a look at soaring rents in the city of Vancouver, once again, highest in, in Canada. There are calls, and I know you're familiar with this, there are calls for what's known as vacancy control. So this would be an even stricter, tighter type of rent control where a landlord mm -hmm. would not be allowed to raise the rent even with the new tenant, like right now we've got rent control in BC, maximum rent hike 2%, but that's only for existing tenants. If you have a new tenant, you can charge whatever you want. Some people want to change that, bring in this vacancy control. So even with a new tenant, you would face that rent cap. What do you think of, of that idea? I think you've got to be absolutely crazy uh, to even entertain um, that idea. So what we have right now is you're capped at your annual rent increases. So we had a two-year rent freeze during COVID. The year after that, it went to 1.5% and then 2%. Um, landlords, their strata, their taxes, their insurance premiums, water deductibles, everything has gone sky high. So if landlords can't raise the rents to cover those costs, they're going to cash out probably to an end user. Okay. They'll write subject to vacant possession. That tenant's got to be out of there. That's one less rental unit in the rental pool. And right now I'm seeing a ton of these, uh, particularly one bedroom, you know, the most affordable, the entry level investors are selling these. They've made their money. They can't raise the rent. They're going to cash out. And so I'm seeing a wave of these units hitting the market and that's going to keep the vacancy rate, it, it it's already tight. Uh, I think it's going to continue to tighten. And pretty soon it's going to be difficult to find any rental at any price. Never mind affordable rentals. There just won't be any rentals available. Now, vacancy hmm. control. Right now, if your tenant moves out and they were paying $1,500 a month, now you can move in a new tenant at $2,000 or $2,200 a month. Okay. Sure. With vacancy control, the rents are tied to the unit, not to the tenants. That tenant moves out, you cannot raise the rents. Right. That would be the absolute death of any rental units here. And I know a lot of renters are angry, you know, the greedy landlords and the investors. But the problem is you do not want to bite the hand that feeds you here because these investors are providing most of the rental stock in our cities. And vacancy control would be an end to that. You know, if we go down that route, we've basically gone to an all out communist uh, uh, province <laughs> here.
All right, we got a few more minutes with my guest, Vancouver real estate agent Jay Cooper. JayCooper.com is his website. Let's go to your phone calls here. Kyle in Vancouver. Hi, Kyle. Go ahead. So uh, the only reason that rent has to go up is relative to interest rates going up. I wouldn't have to raise rent on anyone, and all that money is just going straight to the Bank of Canada. It's not like that money is going into the pockets of the landlords. Okay, so you're a landlord, right? Yeah. Okay, so would you say, like, how much of your costs gone up as a landlord? It feels like 50%, where I used to, to pay a few thousand dollars a month, it's $4,500 a month. I have to raise the rent only yeah. to make the interest payment. Yeah, because you're, cause your mortgage is going up. Mortgage has gone up way higher yeah. than that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you, Kyle, for that. Okay, Jay, you you touched on this point earlier. You know, for people who want really super tight rent control, I can, I can understand that for tenants who are struggling to find a decent, affordable place to live. But for the landlords on the other side of the coin, th there's been no there's been no controls on, on their input costs, like interest rates. But your thoughts? No. And, you know, again, um, it's not just the interest component. It's the it's the strata fees, which have been yeah. and when water deductibles and that kind of thing that have been going up insurance premiums. Um, and so it's. Um, you know, it has to make sense as a business investment, and uh, right now it, it's tough to make that work. And that, and that's why you have landlords in a lot of cases cashing out. Um, mm -hmm. And again, they're going to be selling to an end user, so uh, it doesn't look good for the rental market. Uh, I have a lot of people that have told me, Jay, I'm just going to wait to buy because I want to wait for interest rates to go down. Um, what they don't <laughs> listen if the interest rates you renting is not any kind of shelter from higher interest rates. If if interest rates go up, the landlord is going to find a way to pass those down to the tenant. Otherwise, he's going to cash out or he's going to move his son or daughter into the unit. And you're going to have to be out of there. Yeah, the yeah, other thing good. is if you're yeah. waiting for interest rates to come down, keep in mind all the other, everything is bullish on Vancouver. Everything, the pressure is up. The only thing that is keeping a lid on prices right now is these higher interest rates. So if interest rates start to come down, let's say early next year, like I talked about, the prices are going to go up and more than offset that. So it doesn't really make any difference to relative affordability, whether interest rates are going up or down. The okay. it's still going to, it's still going to get more unaffordable either way. Okay. Squeeze in another call, Bruce in Kelowna. Hi, Bruce. Go ahead. You know, um, I'm 74 years old. My mom and dad, when when they were buying a home and, and raising a family, you could not buy land in Canada unless you were a, a landed immigrant for five years. That took all the foreign buyers out of it because there was nobody like uh, Shanghai, whatever, coming in, flying in from China, buying 26 homes on the way from the airport to the uh, office. Well, creating, I think okay, okay, Jay, your your Jay, your thoughts on foreign buyers. I mean, hasn't that hasn't the foreign buyer issue been largely dealt with? We just got a minute left. Go ahead. Um. Well, yeah, we have a, a foreign buyer ban in place right yeah. now, so yeah. foreign buyers can't actually buy property in in BC. Yeah. Yeah. Ex exactly. Mike in Surrey. Mike, you got thirty seconds here. Go ahead. Thirty seconds. Yeah. See both sides of the equation. We've got a daughter, 28, trying to buy a place. I'm selling rental properties just like your gentleman said here. My dad pays $250,000. Uh, he, he has a renter for $1,500. Uh, today, my properties were $600,000. I've got to sell it because I can get 5% of my GIC. So that means I need to get at least $2,500 from the renter plus the uh, strata fee plus the taxes. So that little condo that I used to be a little rental property, somebody's getting for 1500 will be back on the market. Well, it is on the market now, two of them, and somebody's going to buy it, and they're going to have to pay about $3,000 a month rent to even yeah. make the math work. The Thank math you. Thank you, Mike. Your guest is spot on. He's got... When Thank he you, Mike. You're going to sell all this stuff. Thank, Thank you, Mike, for the call. But we got more calls coming in. Jay, we'll just have to have you back. Thanks for coming on today. Okay, really appreciate it, Mike. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Claudio Popa, cybersecurity expert. It's always great to have him on. Claudio, thank you for coming on today. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Claudio, when you take a look at the list of, of private companies 
and public institutions as well that have been hit with these cyber attacks just in the last year. Man, this is a long list in Canada. So I'm looking at book retailer Indigo, Sobeys, the grocery store chain, Suncor Energy, even the hospital for sick children in Toronto, all victims of these attacks. Is this getting worse? It seems like it's getting worse. On one hand, it's getting worse. On the other hand, it's getting better. Let me explain. The reason it's, I say that it could be getting better is that for the past two decades, Canadian companies have either ignored breaches or failed to detect them. Now it's a new age. We're able to detect breaches. Of course, cyber criminals are no longer accepting being ignored. So they usually tell the victims, look, we're, unless you pay, we're going to go public with this information. And finally, Canadian companies are investing in technology that allows them to know when they're being breached, which actually reduces the damage because they're able to detect it sooner. Those are the positive ways to spin this. The negative ways to spin it are simply that we are over a decade behind uh, U.S. companies, U.S. counterparts, because we haven't had the right legislation in place for a very long time. And yes, Canadian companies do tend to be behind in cybersecurity investment. And of course, that attracts cyber criminals. That's why we're seeing this vast increase in the number and and profile of these uh, of these damaging and disruptive breaches. Where do these cyber criminals operate? They are not based in Canada, right? These are international attacks coming at us from outside the country. That's right. There's a very small subset of attackers that operate within Canada, and even when they do that, they have to bounce around anonymize themselves, look like they're coming from outside Canada, because as you can imagine, the uh, long arm of uh, Canadian law uh, does stop at the border. But if they're lucky enough to catch Canadian criminals, they will punish them accordingly. So most of those cyber criminals are based outside of Canada. Many of them are in China and Russia and and various other Eastern Bloc uh, countries. But by and large, we need to realize that they're not even centralized. These are decentralized, organized criminal enterprises that form dynamic groups of people who happen to be on multiple continents at any one time and protect themselves individually. That's what's so hard for law enforcement to tackle. There's also some uh, evidence or reports of state cooperation with some of these groups as well. Like I was reading in the report yesterday from the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity that they believe that Russian intelligence services have relationships with these cyber criminals and allow them to operate with impunity. That's correct. Is that going on? Yeah. That's correct. Yeah, absolutely. And I saw that report and and um, and the Canadian government should be commended for recognizing that and for actually putting it into into print because not enough law enforcement and not enough agencies are uh, shedding light on that phenomenon. There are governments that are sponsoring or otherwise enabling this type of activity and looking the other way when it does happen. Why? Because it benefits them. There's a lot of espionage that's taking place. There's a ton of information that is being shared by these groups. And of course, it serves them well to to say, look, um, we have been doing a lot of hacking abroad, but there's some sensitive information we have gathered that might interest certain agencies within our government. So they essentially trade their freedom for for Canadian companies' uh, data and uh, information, which is obviously not something that should be tolerated by either taxpayers or Canadian agencies. For sure. Speaking to cybersecurity expert Claudio Popa, a lot of these attacks that we're discussing, Claudio, of course, are ransomware attacks. And I'm taking a look at the names of some of these ransomware programs identified yesterday. Lockbit, Black Cat, Karakurt, Conti. I don't know where they get these names from. What are what are these things like when people see the names of these these ransomware programs? What these what are these different programs that attack attack infrastructure? 
Well, that's an excellent question. Uh, these names are usually given by the first security company that identifies a piece of malicious software. So don't think that there's any criminal out there that starts waving a flag saying, call me Conti. No, it tends to be Symantec. It tends to be McAfee. It tends to be Microsoft. Their teams are constantly competing with other teams of defenders. And as soon as they find new malware, they give it a name. And that name tends to stick because they put it in a press release and that's how the media refers to it. So we have been using it as shorthand to identify not just that particular individual piece of uh, software, but the entire family because you've got the bottom feeders, right? You've got the organized criminals and then you've got everybody else that simply finds one of these pieces of malware or viruses, copies it, changes it a little bit so that it's just different enough so it's undetectable by your computer's antivirus and re-releases it, which makes it part of the family, but not officially identical to the original strain. Again, that's the type of thing that makes it such a difficult slog and fight for law enforcement and antivirus, anti-malware companies alike. Yeah, it's like that technological arms race trying to stay on top of all these different programs that come out in software programs. And right. when you take a look at ransomware and the way it's working right now, it is obviously a profitable enterprise for these cyber criminals. That was highlighted in the report yesterday. People are making money on this. It is, it is working. And that's why they anticipate it is going to escalate. So when we talk about ransomware, can you just briefly describe that? Basically, is it as simple as they steal the, in you know, these cyber criminals will steal the information uh, from these corporations, from these institutions, and then ask for money to release it back, correct? That's correct. And another reason why that, uh, why yesterday's report was meaningful is that it clarified for the Canadian public the fact that it's not just about infecting somebody's computer once. They infect it, they steal the information, they paralyze a Canadian company, and then they come back and they say, look, uh, if you pay me a certain amount, I will give you access to a few of your own servers. If you pay me more, I'll give you access to all of your servers, but you don't necessarily get your data back. If you pay me a little more, you get your data back. And if you pay me even more, I will delete my copy of your data so that you know that I've, I've deleted it. Of course, you'll have no proof. So companies are taking a chance in doing this, but there are two, three, four ways to monetize each individual data breach. So they are becoming that much more impactful, that much more dangerous and disruptive for Canadian companies. It's not just the financial impact, it's also the reputational impact, of course. Wow, what a sinister game of let's make a deal that is. That's yeah. it. That's incredible. Yeah. And do you think like a lot of companies are paying this ransom, right? Like do do most companies will they pay up? Is it is it a, is it a wise decision to pay this ransom? The vast majority of these companies have been paralyzed. In other words, they can't do business until they regain control of their computers. The the ask has become so astronomical that it's in the hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars. Wow. So companies essentially have to go to their insurance. If they're lucky enough to have a cyber insurance policy, that kicks in. And what happens then is that the insurance company actually has a negotiation team. As part of that negotiation, they lower the price and they, they, they come up with something that works for all sides. But also as part of that negotiation, unfortunately, it becomes a secret game. And so many companies that go through insurance never report these breaches. So the numbers that we're talking about are much higher than those reported because many of the companies that go through insurance are getting these costs covered by insurance, but at the cost of secrecy. And that cost of secrecy actually impacts everyone in Canada because we simply do not have the statistics to reflect the true impact of this vast a vastly growing cybercrime wave that we've noticed in the past few years. Okay, Claudio, last question for you. You touched briefly on this earlier. Is the government doing enough to counter this threat? I know there has been some proposed legislation that, that there's been some controversy around. You mentioned that we're behind the United States here. What is the government doing, and is it, is it enough right now? Uh, it's it, quite frankly, it's never enough. It's not enough for any uh, government. Governments are not entities that keep up 
definitely they do not stay ahead of the threat. The main issue in Canada is we do not have legislation that forces or motivates companies to come clean because most companies are embarrassed, just like uh, individual Canadians who are defrauded or scammed, they tend to not report it. It's the same thing for companies. They don't want to lose faith and, and they, uh, they want to preserve the trust of, of their customers. What the uh, government should be doing is, is uh, putting out this type of report more often and across more media outlets so as to ensure that it reaches literally everyone, right? This is of interest to everybody. Why? Because the companies that are getting breached can, are losing our data. They're losing the identities of Canadian citizens. They're not just losing their own accounting records and various other pieces of information. They're losing data that they do not own. And it's Canadians that own that data. And it's Canadians that deserve to not just know about this, but actually understand what it is they're reading about in the newspapers. I realize that people are getting desensitized to hear the word breach, but it's, yeah. it's time now to explain to people what each breach entails and how disruptive this is, potentially for years to come for every single one of those victims involved in one of these massive data breaches. Claudio, it's always great to have you on in this very important topic. Thank you for coming on today. It's my pleasure. Excellent questions. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Claudio Popa, their cybersecurity expert. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.